God in heaven, we love you. And we're grateful for the opportunity to gather in your name and to study your scriptures uh, that your spirit has anointed. Um, pray that we would have ears to hear uh, what the Spirit is saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this will be our last installment of our Wednesday night Bible study until after the holidays. So next week, you know, is the day before Thanksgiving, and then we're off and running um, for Christmas time, which is a busy time of year. This year, and this hasn't happened in a while, Christmas falls on Sunday, and so does New Year's because that's how it goes. It falls on the same day of the week. So that makes for um, a pretty busy time. So looking forward. Yeah, we will. Yeah. Yeah, New Year's Day. And yeah, yeah, starts at 10-ish, like always. Kind of like Bible study, starting at 7-ish. And um, yeah, we'll we'll have it on Christmas Day. We'll have it on New Year's Day. What else are you going to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch a little football on TV or something if, if you're into such things. There you go. So we, ha- we have three stories. Oh, that's not nice, Dave. Redskins are doing pretty good this year. Or as I like to say, the North American Native people groups from D.C., All right, so we have, we have three uh, stories to look at um, from, from Mark chapter 7. Kind of a lengthy one, um, looking at the tradition of the elders. Uh, this very kind of opaque one with the Syrophoenician woman, and then Jesus curing um, a man who is deaf. Uh, this is... The New Revised Standard Version in a red Bible, so you know it's, you know it's good. Yeah. So this is a, this is a longer passage. I don't, I don't think uh, I'll read the whole passage with the tradition of the elders. And it's, I know it's a little um, confusing, perhaps, to start with a reference to another service if you weren't there. But the last two Sundays, um, uh, Phil preached a sermon uh, two weeks ago on truth or consequences, focusing in on the passage from Matthew 5, let your yes be yes, your no be no. But in that sermon, he referenced um, this other idea, which is found in both in Matthew 23 and here in Mark 7, that some of the Jewish leaders... Um, religious leaders of Jesus' day had let their words kind of be uh, twisted. So their yes meant maybe and their no meant maybe and sometimes it was this way and sometimes it wasn't. Matthew 23 is is very hard-hitting. And uh, I I quoted it again this past Sunday um, as we were kind of wrapping up that series. I would say this, and I I probably should have said it then, Matthew 23 and Mark 7 have a spotted uh, history of reception. That is, not everyone who has read them has used the text uh, in a way that I would deem um, appropriate. 
So Matthew 23 was a very popular text amongst the Third Reich and the Nazis because it was kind of smashing the Jewish leadership in the mouth. And, and they were uh, a predominantly Christian nation who, who liked to pick on the Jews. And of course, that led to the tragedy of the Holocaust. And so when we read texts like this, where Jesus is in this kind of really harsh conflict with the Pharisees, it's probably uh, good for us to pause for a second and note that this is an argument that's going on internally within a people group. So do you know those families who uh, are kind of really loud and, and it's like everything seems to be um, apocalyptic, like they're always going at it? You know, other families are kind of quiet. And if, if somebody grows up in one of those families and they, and they visit the other type of family where everybody's kind of at the dinner table throwing their hands around and, and food's flying and stuff, um, even, even if it gets heated, there is still this sense that there, it's an internal conversation. Like, I might talk about my mom, but I don't want you talking about my mom. And so when Jesus, who was a Jewish rabbi, or at least that's how some people saw him, they called him that. Um, he was more than that, of course, but he wasn't less than that. Um, and as a, maybe even more so, Jesus as a prophet, which of course many people saw him as. We looked at that some last week in Mark chapter 8. Who do people say that I am? Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets. In the prophetic role, particularly in the Hebrew prophets, there was this sense in which the Hebrew prophet would speak very harshly, um, often about the leadership, the king, who was, of course, you know, God's anointed person to lead God's people, but doesn't mean that there wasn't a chance for them to do wrong. And so that's how I kind of understand these, these passages. Um, we'll, we'll pick up maybe in verse 5. Uh, so the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he said, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your mother and father, or father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must surely die. But you say that if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever support you might have had from me is korban, that is, is an offering to God then you no longer permit doing anything for a father or mother, thus making void the word of God through your tradition that you have handed on. And you do many things like this. Then he called the crowd again, and he said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then do you also fail to understand? 
Do you not see whatever goes into a person outside, from outside, cannot defile, since it enters not the heart but the stomach and goes out into the sewer? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, It is what comes out of a person that defiles, for it is from within that the human heart, from, excuse me, for it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, lander, uh, slander, pride, folly. All of these things come from within. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Uh, first, I'd just like to say, I thought I did a really good job uh, pronouncing uh, avarice and licentiousness, because those are hard words to say, I think. But um, other than that, uh, the first is kind of extreme greed, and the second has to do with kind of sexual immorality. So contextually, I think this is easy to miss just how significant it is for a Jewish rabbi to say to people, there is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but things that come out are what defile. I mean, a big part of how they identified themselves as a group was their ritual laws of dietary purity, right? The way, what they would eat, what they wouldn't eat, who they would eat with, who they wouldn't eat with, what they had to do to prepare their meals. I mean, even, even to this day, a kosher kitchen um, is one that would not mix their milk and meat products. So in, uh, in a kosher home or in a kosher restaurant, there'll be two kitchens. One kitchen where you kind of prepare breakfast food that might include milk, and another kitchen where you could pre uh, prepare lunch or dinner meals that would not, and the utensils never get crossed between the two, and the pots and pans never get um, crossed between the two, because they're gonna, kind of keeping strict to this kind of law, which is built on a Levitical statement that you ought not cook a kid in its mother's milk. Kid meaning a baby goat, not like a baby human. <laughs> you ought not kick, cook any baby humans. <laughs> um, but you ought not kick, uh, cook a baby goat in its mother's milk. And they kind of extrapolated on that, and that's how we ended up with these kind of significant uh, rules here. Yeah, so this, this, ha this has a lot. I mean, we, we do see um, later in the early church as it starts to expand the, the vision of, of Peter at uh, Simon's house in Acts um, chapter 10. Yeah, Peter's vision, 9. Yeah. And then he goes up to Cornelius' house in chapter 10. So, and you get this, this practice, right, that um, the early uh, Christians were starting to kind of differentiate a bit um, from their Jewish roots. Not that they thought it was utterly something new, but, but there was this sense in which to include the Gentiles did not necessarily mean that the Gentiles had to become Jewish. So, for example, circumcision. Uh, which, interestingly enough, doesn't get mentioned um, in the Gospels. Um, and uh, food, what you could and could not eat. This kind of brings us to um, the next story. 
I said all that to say, if you want to have some bacon, you can. Um, yeah, praise the Lord. Um, this brings us to the next story, which is a very interesting one with the Syrophoenician woman, um, partially because she is from an area where um, the, the Jewish, the strict kind of Jewish teaching would have excluded her. So from here, he set out, I'm reading in verse 24, from here he, meaning Jesus, set out and went away to the region of Tyre, which would be kind of the southern part of modern-day Lebanon. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice, but a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. Hmm. This is a tough one. It's a tough one on multiple points, right? Like, why is Jesus doing calling this lady a dog? <coughs> or did he call? I mean, he did, got it, right? She's like, hey, can I have your assistance? And he's like, well, I'm really here for the kids, not for the dogs. And then she says, well, even the dogs get the crumbs. And he's like, well, I guess you're right. So your, your daughter can be delivered. Um, this is a, a very extraordinary passage of Scripture, I think. The number of people who kind of encounter Jesus and then have some kind of, kind of conflict, some kind of verbal disagreement, uh, is kind of numerous. So not just in Mark, but in the other Gospels as well. You'll find someone kind of encountering Jesus, and especially in John, for example, you get his mother saying, hey, we're out of wine. And he's like, woman, it's not my time. Or Nicodemus, we know you're a teacher from God. And he says, well, you must be born from above. He's like, well, how can you do that? Or the Samaritan woman, um, he says, we worship. Uh, well, we worship and you worship. And she goes, yeah, I know all that. But I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew. Um, the man by the sheep gate seems to want Jesus to throw him in the water and Jesus offer him something different, not just help to get in the water, but actual wholeness. The Pharisee after Pharisee, tax collectors, um, kind of the religious leaders and, and the general people. No one seems to be able to get the best of Jesus in a conversation. Like, there's kind of a word tiff, and in the end, they're like, either they're like, oh, yeah, okay, Jesus, you're good, I'll follow you, or, mm, I can't, can't quite make that out, and they, they, they back away. This is the only case, I'm pretty sure, where there's a disagreement between Jesus and someone else, and at the end of the conversation, Jesus is like, okay, 
You got me. I'll, we'll go with your, your assessment. I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to, to think about. What, is, what would it mean for us to think about um, Jesus learning something? Or Jesus being persuaded by someone else? Is that within our capacity of who we think Jesus is? I mean, I know in Luke's gospel it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, which I take to mean that he learned things and he got bigger, you know, as he grew up. But at some point, do we think that Jesus reached this kind of, I don't know, kind of omniscient level? It is one of those categories that we want to kind of fit Jesus into, right? Because we talk about his divinity. But then we don't want to say Jesus was omnipresent, like Jesus was everywhere, because obviously he wasn't. I mean, if he's in Galilee, he's in Galilee. He's not in Jerusalem. So then back to, back to John's gospel, when he gets to uh, Bethany, Martha comes out and kind of grills him and like, where you been? Why weren't you here? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. So he wasn't there, right? Jesus wasn't in multiple places at the same time. So what, is, what does it mean for for Jesus to be in a conversation with someone and then they kind of say, well, what about this? And he's like, well, yeah, I guess you're right. Is he, is he just playing the game? Is he just pretending? Could he be testing, their faith? testing their faith? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. We, we talked about this um, in the previous weeks about whether or not faith is mentioned in a story. Like, sometimes it's very obvious, right? Like, it's the faith, uh, Jairus is told to believe. The woman with the issue of blood, your faith has made you well. At other points, it doesn't seem like, like the man who's touched twice from last week. That doesn't seem to have anything. I mean, faith is not brought up in the discussion at all. So, again, I mean, so we have, uh, it's a good question, right? So often in our Bibles, we'll have, like, these little cross-references. You know, it says, like, look up this other scripture. Who put those in there? Like, who gets to decide what's the other scriptures that we lay beside this one? So, for example, we read this earlier, and Ted said, well, what about in Exodus, where it says God heard Moses' prayer, right? Um, and, and Patty kind of, kind of echoed that. So that, that's an example of, you know, choosing, choosing a passage to kind of read with it, which is very, very, I mean, it was, uh, the rabbis did this all the time kind of choosing passages to read side by side. An interesting one uh, that might kind of uh, go along the same trail that, that Pat's on is that the, the rabbis seem to prefer Abraham over Noah. And the reason being is they would compare the two, the two Genesis characters, both of whom were told God was going to destroy, right? Noah, God's going to destroy the earth. Uh, Abraham, God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Noah just complies. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, the stories of Noah, Noah doesn't have any words. He, 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 only, he only acts. He never says anything. Abraham, on the other hand, when God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Abraham resists, right? 
this is kind of like Moses, kind of, right? Um, Abraham's saying, no, God, no, don't do it that way. <laughs> do it this way. Let's, let's, find some, let's find some faithful ones. And so that struggle was actually preferred by the rabbis, that Abraham was the, was the better of the two because he grappled with it. And so in the story then, it's Abraham who's behaving like God, and God is behaving otherwise in order to, de to develop Abraham's character. Maybe, maybe not. Just want, let, me, let me just finish this thought. So if we were to apply that same phenomenon here, then Jesus' comment about the preference of the Jews over the Gentiles wasn't because he was advocating for the preference of the Jews over the Gentiles, but that he was going to see if the Syrophoenician woman would resist that, which she does, and of course she's rewarded. Um, the other possibility is that he, actually he was actually showing a preference for the Jews, and she said, well, what about us? And he's like, oh, yeah. Um, I'm coming to you, Marissa. What's interesting in terms of the narrative flow, Jesus has just said it's not what goes in, it's what comes out, which is already pressing the very envelope of Jewishness, kind of, right? And, and it's in a parenthetical statement in the RSV, but um, it's the last phrase of verse 19. Thus he declared all foods clean. I'm not sure how the other translations translate that. But, but that idea, declaring all foods clean, is also this kind of, in a way, inclusion of the others. Like the, the Syrophoenician would be somebody who would have eaten those other things. And so the natural flow away from he's declared all foods clean is to then also include those people who would eat those things, which is exactly what the next story does. Which, of course, by the time Mark's writing the gospel, Christianity has already included these Gentiles. Like maybe... Jesus as the Son of Man is the ultimate example of what it means to be a human. And if Scripture kind of, and the early church, would emphasize Jesus' humanity, then the better question is not, is Jesus a human like me or like us, but to what extent are we human like Jesus? What if Jesus becomes the measure of humanity and we don't always measure up to it because of our fallenness or our sinfulness? Or sometimes we were kind of less than human almost. We're more base, kind of just driven by our desires or something. And that Jesus is actually kind of the perfect picture of what it means to be human. Um, this kind of relationship, of course, of Jesus, the early church would say that Jesus is 100% divine and 100% human, which I know mathematically does not work. But math and theology doesn't go together very well either because, you know, the Trinity is one God and three. Um, so one plus, one plus one equals one. Does that ever happen? Like a, like a, like a base one system or something? I don't, I don't know higher math. Base two system. Math question. Does one plus one plus one ever equal one in actual math? 
Like I think in a binary system, it ends up equal, it, it equals like 010101. Oh, hopefully this, are you shaking your head, Danny, or are you just scratching? All right. In any case, um, in Scripture, in terms of the humanity of Jesus, if you deny that Jesus is human, the, the writer of the Johannine epistles say, you speak with the spirit of Antichrist, which is a very, very derogatory statement. Yeah. So to deny Jesus' humanity, which I think sometimes we're tempted to do because we think his divinity somehow can, can um, trump his humanity. Um, you speak with the spirit of Antichrist. It, it never says the opposite. Um, but yet I think, uh, again, in the, kind of the, in, in the Johannine literature, it's, it's, and even in the Gospels as well, it's quite clear that, that Jesus is divine. I mean, he gets worshipped in Revelation and in Matthew, you know, on the Mount of Ascension. It says that some doubted and others worshipped, like they're worshipping Jesus. He's becoming the object of their worship, which is a big thing for a group of monotheistic Jews. I mean, think through that. The way scripture, the way I understand scripture talking about Jesus, so if we take like the, the hymn from Philippians 2, having, this is a visual so you have to watch, having equality with God, he did not consider it something to be held on to, so he emptied himself even to the point of becoming a human and was obedient even to the point of dying on a cross. So then God raised him up and has set him above all other names, and by no other name shall a person be saved. Right? Uh, that's a paraphrase of Philippians 2. So this, this kenosis, this kind of, this pouring out, seems to be pretty significant, right? So that he, he, experienced, he experienced all that humans experience. I mean, in, in Mark's gospel, he gets hungry, he gets tired, he gets kind of disappointed, um, if you, if you nail him to a cross, he'll die. Yeah. But he got frustrated. He got frustrated. Yeah, thanks. Um, and so he has all of that, right? And what I think in some ways, Dave, is extraordinarily significant is that the early church fathers understood the incarnation to be eternal. That, that Jesus' um, body gets resurrected, a resurrected body. And, and so even though there is an ascension, he doesn't kind of cease to be human. But in his humanity, um, and because of his place, he kind of now has made a spot for the, for the rest of humanity to enter into relationship with God. So, so now, since the incarnation, humanity is in this relationship with God because of Jesus. So Jesus is kind of this unique position. So... Yeah, so his humanness is not something that got laid down after the crucifixion, but something that kind of was, is, is maintained into eternity, which is an amazing thing to think about. Talk about sacrifice. I mean, that's a lot. Uh, unconceivable, really, how much that is. And it also says something, too, on a side note, about the goodness of creation. Right? When God created in the beginning, he said it was good. And then, you know, Jesus became flesh. He was incarnate, in the carnal. 
So that's this kind of affirmation of the goodness of creation. But then the resurrection then becomes this reaffirmation of the goodness of creation. I mean, if, if Jesus was just going to die so we can go to heaven, then, then why didn't when he died on the cross, he just go to heaven? See what I'm saying? Like everybody I know who's loved the Lord and has passed away, we say is, you know, with God. That they have not been resurrected. Well, we believe they will be, but they haven't yet. Yeah? So if there wasn't like a resurrection to come for the rest of us, then why didn't Jesus just pay his death, pay the debt of sin or whatever on the cross and then just go to be with the Father? Why the resurrection? Like the resurrection is this like radical affirmation of the goodness of creation. Like being human is not a sinful thing. It's not a sin to be human. Yeah, which is a great point, right? So that, the, so that the end game is not just a spiritual reality, but is a, um, a complete, a new reality that, it, that includes, you know, creation and the redemption of it, right? Which is, which is a good thing. Which we get a taste of, um, both in terms of the deliverance, like this... this girl, right? It's her daughter who gets delivered. And the next guy, which we could probably look at just for a few seconds, um, the deaf man who gets healed. It's, it's another healing story. This is not the first one and it won't be the last. But Jesus returned uh, from the region of Tyre and went by the way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had... Um, an impediment in his speech. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then he looked up to heaven and sighed and said to him, Ephatha, uh, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute uh, to speak. I, I, can, I can promise you, I, I'm never um, spitting on your tongue. <laughs> Just saying. Um, we've, we've, talked, we've talked about this some before, but um, I think uh, as we looked last, last week, um, because we'd made the connection between the, the seeing and the uh, feeding that goes on in chapter 8, and we talked about the confession of um, who Jesus is and that some people thought he was a prophet. He is very prophet-like, Yeah. He, he speaks like a prophet. He acts like a prophet, sometimes doing bizarre things like the prophets did. Like it's not normal to spit on somebody's tongue or to put your finger in their ears. That's, that's not how we normally behave. 
Uh, actually, I have. I've seen a lot of things in church growing up. Uh, Appalachian Pentecostalism. Yeah, you, you don't want to know everything I saw growing up. Um, but yeah, this, this kind of gets played out, um, certainly in the, in the confession. This is why some people say, you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, you're one of the other the prophets, right? Because he's doing these types of things. But as we find out in 8, he's not just a prophet. Again, he's not less than a prophet. Um, he's not less than a rabbi. He definitely fills both roles, but then we find out that he is the Christ and all of the implications that we have there. Sometimes I think it would be nice if the Gospels did more psychoanalysis of Jesus. Like, it would be nice if they kind of told us more about what Jesus was thinking than they do. I mean, I would like that. I say it would be nice. We don't, we don't get a lot of that, or hardly any, really. Um, but I think we do get points at it. Mark's, Mark's kind of quiet on it, like in The Temptation. But uh, Matthew and Luke, I think, give us a glimpse more into that. And then um, all the Gospels in the kind of the Gethsemane prayer, right? You see this both, I mean, both this kind of sameness in one way, right? But then the, the prayer kind of presupposes some space, right? I, I wish it could be this way. And then he prays until his own desires kind of get shaped into the desires of his father. So not my will, but your will. That's a very comforting thing for me. That's all this kind of, um, speaking of the humanity of Jesus, all, all of this um, prayer that Jesus does, like he kind of prays and he prays, he gets up early and prays, he goes to the mountain and prays. You know, he sneaks away and prays. I mean, if Jesus is praying all the time, how much more do I need to pray? I mean, and if Jesus' prayers are what seem to kind of, um, for lack of a better term, enable him, right, to be in line with the Father, and then, of course, to then do his, his ministry, his life and work, then, then, then all the more um, that I think I need that.